The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Heyman Hahn with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for July 24th, 2022. This coming Wednesday is the 69th anniversary of the Armistice of the Korean War. Popularly known as Chirichi in Korean, or 727 in English, the Armistice marks an agreement to end active hostilities until, quote, a final peaceful settlement is achieved. But this year marks another year that a final peace settlement has not been achieved. Technically, the Korean War is still ongoing, in spite of efforts past and present to change that reality. This archive episode talks about what the status of the Korean War looks like from an international law perspective, explores how the war changed the way we talk about war powers in the U.S., and touches on what transpired on the peninsula during a conflict that has continued to have indelible impacts on the region and international affairs today. This is the Lawfare Podcast. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 20th, 2020. This year marks the 70th anniversary of the beginning of the Korean War, which is Uh, Last I checked, still going on. The Korean War is often called the Forgotten War because we remember Vietnam so well, we remember World War II so well, and wedged in between is this conflict that we often overlook. And yet much of our contemporary international politics in East Asia is highly conditioned by the Korean War The people of Korea continue to live with its aftermath, both in the North and in the South. And the shadow of the Korean War looms large over one of the great debates we often have on lawfare, which is the subject of war powers. So we thought commemorating the 70th anniversary of the U.S. entry into the Korean War would be a really interesting little project. We got together quite a panel to do it. Catherine Moon is a professor of political science at Wellesley College. She's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution Center for East Asia Policy. Matt Waxman is a professor at Columbia University Law School and is, of course, a lawfare long-timer. And, of course, Scott Anderson, senior editor of Lawfare is a specialist on war powers, among other things, on the history of which Matt Waxman is also writing a book. 
We covered a lot of ground in this conversation. What happened on the Korean Peninsula during the war? How did it affect the way we talk about war powers? And what is the international law status of the conflict in Korea? It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 20th, The Forgotten War Remembered. So we have breaking news. After 70 years, the Korean War is still going on. This is, within a margin of error, the 70th anniversary of the beginning of the international operation on the Korean Peninsula. Catherine, get us started. Most people don't have a sense, much historical sense of the Korean War anymore. What was it? And to what extent is it still unresolved? Well, you started us off uh, perfectly because the Korean War is often dubbed the Forgotten War. It's been going on so long and uh, it's still live technically, even though there was an armistice that was signed in July of 1953. And it was a war that was never called a war technically. It was called the Korean conflict for a very long time. What was the Korean War? Uh, Simply, the North Koreans, the communist forces, they invaded the south, the border south of the 38th parallel, which divided the north and the south. The north and south became divided in order to get the Japanese out of the Korean Peninsula during the end of the Pacific portion of World War II. And the northern part of the Korean Peninsula was supposed to be managed by the Russians, who were our allies at the time in World War II. And the southern part, below the 38th parallel, where the division was drawn, was supposed to be managed by the United States or the UN forces. What is really interesting is that the Korean Peninsula from 1945 toward the end of World War II uh, to now has been in a constant and chronic state of dividedness and I would say a nation state that is unfulfilled. Even though South Korea is one of the most prosperous countries in the world, Both the North and the South see the project of nation building as incomplete because of the initial division in World War II and the Korean War that truly divided the entire society on the peninsula. The Northerners had invaded the South by surprise, Um, Even though there were warnings that such troop movements were going to take place, uh, the Americans didn't take this seriously. They did not take the North Koreans very seriously as a serious threat. And strangely enough, this weak power had the ability to drive U.S. forces and South Korean military forces on the southern part of the peninsula way down all the way to the southern tip the port city of Busan, in a very short span of time. We nearly lost the southern half of the Korean Peninsula to the North Koreans at the initial period of the Korean War. So the intervention, which we are now at the point of the 70th anniversary of, as you say, was not described as a war, but it was 
I think in body count terms, one of the most costly conflicts of the 20th century, I, 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 I you know, World War II is far and away the n- number one and World War I is number two. And I think the Korean War is sort of right up there after these two. There may be some others that are more costly, but it goes on for a relatively short period of time. And yet it is hugely, hugely consequential in the sense that when, you know, when Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un meet today uh, in Singapore or, or the demilitarized zone, they're negotiating the consequences of the Korean War. Is that, is that fair? For sure, for sure. You're absolutely right. Um, the Korean War had, the, had one of the highest civilian casualty rates, historically speaking, at least in terms of U.S. participation in wars. So the civilian death rate in the Korean War surpassed that of World War II and the Vietnam War. It involved millions of people, Koreans on the peninsula from both the North and the South, Americans, Chinese, as well as UN troops, meaning about 16 countries who had contributed their forces to the United Nations Command. When we look at the the tally of casualties, we are looking at a North Korean society that lost between 12 to 15% of its entire population. It is considered one of the highest losses ever, historically speaking, in modern warfare. The North Koreans had about 300,000 dead, another 230,000 wounded, and uh, about 91,000 missing. And, you know, it's an astounding number who participated. American soldiers from all of the different branches of the services we can tally close to 1.8 million U.S. troops on the peninsula during the war. And the Chinese lost uh, over 183,000 people, battle deaths. Um, and then, of course, there were hundreds of thousands more wounded and another 25,000 or so who were missing. Um, the South Koreans lost uh, about 140,000 uh, military deaths and another 24,500 or so missing. You know, when you think about missing soldiers, they are the embodiment of a war that did not end because we are still trying to negotiate the return of the remains of American soldiers. Uh, the South Koreans would love to see some kind of negotiation with the North proceed so that South Korean families could get back the remains of their loved ones. It was a tremendous loss. And of course, the economic costs were also high. Um, if I may, I think the, the lasting impact of the Korean War on the peninsula, it cannot be underscored enough. When we look at the rise of South Korea's economy, it had everything to do with the Korean War and the continuing threat of the North Korean military, the fear that the North Koreans could invade again. That fear led the South Korean governments under authoritarian regimes, as well as the South Korean publics, to conduct probably one of the the most rapid economic rises in global history. 
The whole idea was we have to be a strong economy in order to protect ourselves and make sure that we cannot be vulnerable to North Korean attack. The North Koreans, an impact there, we see one of the most hyper-militarized societies in the, in the world. The continuing reign of the Kim dynasty that has been able to emphasize to its publics over generation after generation that without the Kims, the North would be vulnerable to the United States and to South Korea. All right. So with that as background, Scott, this podcast came about because you casually mentioned the other day that, you know, the Korean War is important in the history of U.S. war powers, which, of course, the moment you said it, it's it's an obvious point, And yet I hadn't thought about it. Catherine refers various times to the U.N. force, to this being a conflict, not a war, or a, a, sometimes it's called a police action. Why the weird terminology associated with the Korean War? So it's absolutely true that the Korean War really hangs very large in the imagination of lawyers who deal with war powers and really broader foreign relations questions. To some extent, a bit of that reputation about how seminal an event it is uh, may be a little bit overstated. I know Matt and I have talked about in this past, and I, and I would invite Matt uh, in a second to kind of elaborate why that might be. But the Korean War does usefully bring in a number of factors that have really proven instrumental in decisions about war powers later in conflicts. They're the kind of factors that, for many people, think either legal analysis should or does hinge in regards to whether a president can use military force. One, uh, the Korean War was not authorized by Congress, at least not expressly and then not initially. There was never a declaration of war as there was in World War II and had been in many prior, although not all prior, conflicts. Two, instead, what they had was authorization from the UN Security Council, um, which the Truman administration had been able to pursue uh, and secure in part because the Soviet Union had been boycotting the Security Council and therefore provided this a new treaty based international law based authorization, uh, which had a questionable degree of domestic uh, authorization as well that brought with it. Many people subsequently say that, in fact, the UN Security Council doesn't automatically authorize anything under U.S. law, but people at the time didn't necessarily feel that way. And the third factor is that in light of those two factors, the Korean War became as Catherine already noted, a major conflict, major large-scale deployment. And so insofar as there is an effort to say, well, the president can pursue certain types of military action, but not others, the Korean War is hard to say that this is anything short of a full-on war, a large-scale conflict. And therefore, in a way, it implicates the most serious uses of the president's war powers. And because of those three major considerations, the Korean War is often seen as one of the those key case studies, key data points in tracking how U.S. war powers and presidential war powers have evolved over time. Yeah. So, Matt, let's let's dive into a couple of those points. You know, Arthur Schlesinger in his famous book, The Imperial Presidency, kind of traces the imperial presidency to the Korean War, at least in the war powers context, right? That, you know, Truman doesn't get a declaration of war. It's never 
directly authorized by Congress. And Schlesinger regards this as the watershed moment after which the presidency is never the same. To what extent is this good history? And to what extent is this, I mean, Schlesinger was a historian, not a lawyer, but kind of lawyer's history. Is it as big a watershed in war powers as we as we kind of imagine it in con law classes, or is the story more complicated than that? So I'd characterize it as a major step in the sort of accretion of presidential powers, especially presidential war powers. But I think it's often overstated just how significant a leap it was and what the sort of the lasting presidential impact of the Korean conflict was. So, you know, this was the largest and still is the largest foreign war that the United States has fought without uh, an express congressional war declaration or authorization, at least not at the at the front end. And it's, uh, as you say, in sort of war powers lore, including in Schlesinger's famous imperial presidency book, it's it's treated as a watershed event. And I do think that the legal argumentation of uh, justifying Uh, Truman's intervention without congressional authorization becomes a template for later executive branch justifications for unilateral action. There are really a a few arguments that I think are elaborated by the Truman administration for unilateral action that hadn't been fully sort of briefed in this way before. One is to elaborate a very broad understanding of the president's self-defense powers that whereas previously the sort of the unilateral power to use force and self-defense was defined in terms of mostly in terms of protecting territory or, or, or American people. Now uh, we, the president is asserting uh, the sort of defense of uh, systemic interests, including stability and international legal system. Soon after that, uh, American allies. There were elements of this type of legal justification in some previous military interventions, but the Korea memos take them to a new level. Um, there's also a big uh, historical argument that, that you know the president, the, the the Truman administration argues and and tries to detail through a long list um, that the president has often acted unilaterally to prevent violence and other unlawful acts by by other states, and it produces a very very long list of of dozens of such interventions, and that again serves as a template for future. Uh, executive branch administrations to justify later interventions. I do think, though, a a few caveats are in order. First, at the moment of intervention, Truman certainly didn't expect this to be a three-year war with tens of thousands of Americans killed. Um, It's a much bigger war in hindsight than was expected in 1950. And it's also important to keep in, in mind that at that at that time, the point of reference for what a war is was the world wars and possible war with the Soviet Union. And, and compared to those as the baseline, the Korean intervention seemed small by comparison. Second, you know, sometimes the emphasis on the Korean War and the story of the growth of the imperial presidency and unilateral war powers 
obscures just how much power previous presidents had asserted in using limited force and the degree to which checks on unilateral presidential moves that were envisioned at the founding had already eroded. In my view, those checks started eroding almost immediately uh, in, in the early republic, and you get a dramatic sort of uptick in, in in that erosion with the Korean War and the onset of the Cold War. But that's part of a long trend, not something that's entirely new in 1950. And then I, I, I'd say that, you know, looking back since Korea, we haven't had a repeat of, of, of such a dramatic assertion of unilateral powers. You know, even when presidents have asserted the power to start wars or conflicts unilaterally, they've gone to Congress for the big ones. Vietnam is complicated, but you have the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. Both Iraq wars had authorizations from Congress. Afghanistan and the war against al-Qaeda had had an authorization. So Korea remains these days something of of an outlier. Legally, Korea produced a precedent or at least a roadmap for legal argument. But politically, I think the lesson that most administrations have learned was you if you're going to enter a major conflict, you're much better off going to Congress for authorization at the front end. All right. So, Scott, I want to ask you to reflect a little bit on the dichotomy between what Catherine is describing, which is a forgotten war that's really critical in shaping the Korean peninsula, and yet people don't even remember that it happened, or at least have it only as a sense of the the other conflict that happened involving U.S. troops in Asia. And this history that both you and Matt just described, in which this event looms so large in this discrete area of lawyers talking about war powers, is it the forgotten war except by lawyers? That may be one way uh, to look at it or describe the situation. Um, But to some extent, there is a little bit, despite of the dominant role that Korean War plays in war powers thinking, you know, some of the time it is also one of these issues that's kind of not talked about as frequently or directly as one might expect. And in part, that's because it plays this weird sort of dual role, both as a canon and an anti-canon sort of precedent. This idea that it's right on the periphery of what's legally acceptable. Most subsequent modern opinions about presidential war powers from the executive branch we associate with the Office of Legal Counsel, and most of them approach the Korean War pretty cagely. They will occasionally make a reference to it, particularly if they are saying that you know the United States can take certain action because they're relying upon the UN Security Council resolutions or other international law or if foreign policy interests. It tends to weigh a little heavier there for the reasons that Matt noted, because it was new in that regard. It's the first case where the president has relied so heavily on that. Um, But when it comes to the idea that this is a conflict that the president could pursue under his own constitutional power, separate and apart from that question, it's always a tricky case. In 1970, opinion that future Chief Justice William Rehnquist wrote, which is kind of the first, I think of as the first in the line of modern OLC opinions about war powers, he really addresses it and says, this is probably, he strongly implies at least, it's kind of a peripheral case. And he says, well, essentially, 
ultimately Congress more or less acquiesced to what the president was doing. So it became less of a problem. And that acquiescence was in the form of funding, was in the form of simple awareness without cutting off support or ending other sorts of activities or installing any statutory prohibitions um, that may have posed an issue. Ultimately, he kind of implies, although it's really just in a sentence, that that was just not that big an issue uh, ultimately for Congress. And therefore, Congress did ultimately sign off, if not in a conventional authorizing format up front. More recent opinions don't really deal with it that squarely. Don't bring it on and look at it directly or rely on it heavily. And again, I think it's because a lot of people have that view that this was because it was such a major conflict, doesn't fit very neatly in the framework that's often applied to war powers conventionally, that's often associated with the 2011 Libya opinion. That opinion said essentially the president can use force where the actual conflict itself falls below the level of quote unquote war for constitutional purposes, basically means it's a limited conflict. That's not the case here. And then that there's some people say there's an exception to that for cases of self-defense where the United States and the president can act more broadly in self-defense. But that's also a bit of a harder case in the Korea case. It's certainly not conventional self-defense. There's a broader idea, well, maybe this is serving U.S. interests and that's itself its own form of self-defense that Matt alluded to. But that's like a, a slightly uh, dodgier idea. I think most people associate that view of interests with a different scale of presidential authority than an actual threat to the homeland or threat to U.S. forces. And for that reason, it's just not a comfortable case to work into these arguments. And you don't see lawyers invoking it as often as they might, even though from a historical perspective, it was clearly one of these data points that you have to account for in describing the evolution of this thinking. Catherine, do you have thoughts on this? Yeah, I do. Um, uh, This is really fascinating and uh, very enriching. Um, I'm thinking that when we talk about the Forgotten War, there is one uh, state that has not forgotten the the war, and that's North Korea. They live and enact, E-N-A-C-T. They live out the Korean War every single day through various types of propaganda, through art posters, propaganda art posters that always harken back to the Korean War, the statues that are all over the country. War, that war, is a lived experience. It's a daily reminder everywhere you go in North Korea. I was there in 2013, and it was astounding how visually the collective memory of the war lives on, and people are not allowed to forget the war. And why is this so important for North Koreans? We cannot understand North Korea's nuclear development without understanding and accepting that the Korean War lives on, it rages every day in the North. We can't understand the belligerent rhetoric, um, the constant sense of uh, mobilizational capacity uh, of the people um, without understanding what North Korea went through in the war. It was a devastating experience, the Korean War. Their cities were wiped out completely. No building was left standing because of U.S. air power that demolished these places. So many deaths, so many losses. And the North Koreans, why are, all, why are they also so proud and so obstinate? Why do they try to go it alone? Significantly because they take great pride in having rebuilt their society after the devastation of war 
And many people don't know this around the world, even on the Korean Peninsula, but until the late 60s, possibly the early 70s, North Korea had higher GDP rates, higher rates of industrialization, higher rates of literacy, uh, as well as other indicators like uh, longevity, reduced numbers of infant mortality relative to their arch enemy, South Korea. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me. And it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent 
potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So when you talk about the uh, South Korean explosion as sort of one of the world's most explosively growing economies, you're actually not talking about really since the Korean War, but sort of since 1970. It's it's faster even than that. Yes. Um, South Korea struggled uh, in the in the period uh, after it became established as an independent republic at the end of World War II. Um, in 1948, it became its own nation state. And it really struggled to find an economic path that was viable, stable, and only starting in the early 70s did the export regime take off. Before the early 70s, um, the North Koreans were doing very well. The North Koreans actually did quite well uh, into the 70s and then through the 80s and, of course, the 90s and the famine and the end of the Cold War and the Soviet Union's backing of their economy subsidizing them heavily. That's the stuff that led to the downfall of um, this very proud um, so-called self-sufficient regime. But the, the history of the Korean War is absolutely vital to understanding so much of the foreign policy issues that govern um, North-South relations on the peninsula, of course, and uh, the U.S. commitment in terms of U.S. alliance commitments to South Korea, they stem from the Korean War and its aftermath. So many aspects of today's policy issues regarding the peninsula and East Asia, we can go right back to the Korean War as having put down the seeds. Um, There's another aspect that I want to raise in addition to what my colleagues are saying about the legal aspects of the Korean War Um, There are two things here. One is that the armistice agreement that was signed in July of 1953 to end the hostilities, but not end the war, that, you know, it raises some really interesting legal questions. And I have always hoped that I would get to meet lawyers to talk about these things with. The armistice was not signed by South Korean authorities. It was signed by a North Korean general and Uh, the U.S. U.N. commander and um, the North Korean general signed also on behalf of the so-called Chinese volunteers, not the technical 
people's army, but the volunteer army, even though you had millions involved. So if there is to be a peace treaty, which people talk about from time to time, who signs, who becomes a party to the negotiations, who becomes responsible for enforcing, for watching over the peace treaty? It was a UN action, even though the UN is no longer considered an active player on the peninsula. So it raises a bunch of interesting questions. And then you have the status of forces agreements that govern the rights, duties, obligations, and the limitations of such uh, for both the U.S. military and the South Korean government regarding the stationing of U.S. troops on South Korean soil. The U.S. forces have been there since 1957 on a permanent basis, and we still have about 28,500 troops. In the 1960s, we had about 70,000 three divisions of the U.S. military, especially the Army, placed there. And the SOFA, the Status of Forces Agreement, is a highly politicized document. We have one with just about every country that houses U.S. bases, U.S. facilities, U.S. troops. And what's interesting is that the South Korean SOFA, as well as the uh, U.S.-Japan SOFA, stand in as templates um, for other countries that want to either improve their status of forces agreements vis-a-vis the United States um, or want to critique some aspect of the status of forces agreement. So Iraq in 2007, when it was trying to negotiate a SOFA with the United States, they looked at the Japanese, the South Korean, the German, the U.S., uh, NATO, uh, and other such documents. So you, you've got this legal template in the SOFA that is uh, an outgrowth of the Korean War. The fact that there was never any peace that was settled and the fact that the U.S. had to promise uh, U.S. troops and U.S. protection for South Korea's uh, national security because of the constant North Korean threat. So that's a really interesting... So let's take those issues in sequence. Matt, do you have a, a view of... Given who the parties to the armistice are, if the U.S. and North Korea were ever to come to an understanding, as Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un suggested at Singapore that they would, they would, you know, come to an end of the war understanding, who's a party to that treaty, given that technically it was not, it was the UN is the belligerent. South Korea was not a party to the armistice. How does a treaty to end the war work? Uh, Those are great questions. I'll actually first defer to Scott because he dealt with some of these international legal issues uh, in his own experience on the ground in Iraq. And then I can comment on, uh, on Scott's take. Well, sure. Well, let me start with this issue of um, the end of the war, because that's kind of an interesting question. Um, But it's interesting, not just in the Korea context, but also in kind of broader armed conflicts. The traditional international law view, and I mean traditional in terms of like an 18th or 19th century international law practice, was always that armed conflicts tended to end in a treaty, uh, some sort of agreement that laid out the terms by which the conflict would come to an end, by which the grievances would be addressed and restored 
restore some sort of sense of the rights of the parties. And that kind of ties to an old idea that when states entered a state of war, they suspended a lot of their mutual international legal obligations that would apply if they uh, were otherwise states that were not at war with each other. But that idea is really kind of faded into the background. Um, right now, we see all sorts of armed conflicts that don't have uh, a fixed ending. If you want a great example of this, uh, think about what has happened earlier this year in Iraq with the uh, killing of Qasem Soleimani. In that case, we saw the United States rely upon an authorization for for the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 that had pretty much been lying latent for most of the prior decade, except providing some maybe secondary authorization for counter-ISIS operations. But they were able to resurrect it because there was no formal end, let alone a deauthorization of kind of what activities the United States could pursue there. So in this case, you know, what would the parties be to an agreement like this? Probably would, I think, sensibly be the United Nations and North Korea, again, probably involving South Korea as well, as they are kind of the parties. But at this point, the United States uh, is really in South Korea at the invitation of the South Korean government, not under UN auspices. And so far as those are the activities that North Korea wants to address, a quote unquote peace agreement might not be a peace agreement at all. It might be an agreement about a mutual understanding about their activities, which flows from the Korean War, but probably isn't structured as an end of that war, although no doubt it will contain rhetoric that kind of implies as much. The point about Iraq is a really interesting one, uh, and, and all I'll address there without getting into too many details um, is that the Korea and Japan SOFAs, and particularly the Korea SOFA, really have gone under this evolution because Korea and Japan are now close allies. Uh, they have very functional rule of law systems. Um, and there have been a number of high profile incidents where U U.S. service members uh, have been caught doing things that are obviously criminal, things like sexual assault, sometimes physical assault, or there have been accidents that have killed Korean and Japanese citizens uh, arising out of these service members that have proven politically controversial. And there has been efforts to accommodate that by giving more opportunities for Korean and Japanese officials to have some say in how some of these matters are handled. Uh, South Korea was actually the very first foreign country I ever visited other than Canada uh, as a kind of starry-eyed freshman in college. Uh, and I was there right after one of these incidents where, if I recall correctly, I think it was a case where um, some Korean um, citizens have been run over by a U.S. military vehicle. Uh, and it was a, a degree of tension substantially around the U.S. presence there. And to ameliorate that, they've entered into these agreements that provide that basket of rights. Uh, and that's what kind of Iraq, I think, was angling at in their negotiations, saying, well, we want to have a better degree of control over the foreign forces in our borders like Korea and Japan have. Yeah, I, I agree with what Scott said, especially with regard to the international law dimensions of these questions. And I would just add a comment about the domestic law aspect, which is, you know, what, what happens to the idea of constitutional war powers being turned on by the onset of a conflict? What, what happens at the back end when you don't have a formal peace treaty? You know, at the time of the founding, it was understood that if you were in a, in a major conflict, the way it came to an end was going to be a, a treaty. And that treaty was going to come to the Senate for advice and consent. When that way of ending wars uh, goes away, you have this new kind of constitutional issue of, well, when, when do constitutional war powers or domestic war powers, uh, perhaps triggered by wartime statutes, turn back off? Uh, this is an issue that arises in the Civil War where the war doesn't really end uh, with the surrender of Lee's army, uh, but you know, goes on for, for several more years in a, in a sort of insurgency-like sense. World War I is probably the, 
one of the most important examples because the Senate rejects the peace treaty that Wilson comes back uh, in, you know, with carrying his hands from from Europe. And uh, domestic war powers continue for several years beyond the armistice. Uh, so this is an interesting co- constitutional puzzle that I'm, I'm reminded of by the Korea case. Yeah, it's such an interesting point because we think of Korea as in the war powers context as at the front end posing this really interesting question of when of when and how legally wars start but this point when and how do they end it also really poses in the sense that 70 years later we could be having this conversation at all ben i agree with that and i'd actually I, i'd add you know the korean war if if you think about war powers as being mostly about you know, who gets to decide to initiate conflict, Congress or the president. The Korean conflict often sort of looms in that story as one of presidential unilateralism, as the erosion of constitutional checks, uh, an imbalance in our, in our constitution. The Korean War also uh, establishes some other important precedents, especially with regard to war powers and the way the constitution operates during war. One of those is, of course, the famous uh, Youngstown case, or the steel seizure case, which stands out as one of the, the, the rare cases, I think, in which the court rebukes a, a, a sort of a wartime or claimed wartime or conflict time uh, emergency power by the, the president. It's also, it's also the, the conflict in which we have one of our greatest Kind of crises in civil military relations where uh, Truman ultimately relieves MacArthur of command. Uh, as, you know, and, and I think there's an important moment uh, in, in emphasizing uh, civilian control of the military. Both of those cases, both of those instances, the episodes, uh, the MacArthur firing and the steel seizure case are important to consider that in, in, in the historical context here, this is Early in the Cold War, when there's worry uh, that the permanent state of military emergency is going to lead to a garrison state, uh, when we're seeing the conflict of the Cold War as a a battle between two systems, um, having defeated fascism, is democracy going to be able to survive and survive intact against global communism? And so both of these ideas uh, of sort of judicial checks on uh, presidential emergency powers and, and, and presidential supremacy over military commanders. Those are those are pretty important parts of our overall uh, bundle of constitutional checks and balances. It's pretty interesting now that you mention it. So it's not just the beginning of the war, the end of the war. It's also the conduct of the war, although at least the replacement of MacArthur has precedent in Lincoln's serial replacement of the Union general leadership uh, until he gets his hands on Ulysses Grant, right? Absolutely. I I don't mean to suggest that this is the first time in which a president asserts that kind of control and and, and, and Polk uh, during the Mexican-American War exerts a, a lot of control over 
officers who are in, in, in various types of command. It's not entirely new, but I think it's an issue that really comes to a head in the in the Korean War with a, a level of, of, of sort of special emergency because there was real worry that a, an extremely popular military commander might be sort of unilaterally uh, and against the wishes of civilian leaders sort of marching the United States down a, a path of superpower escalation. Okay, uh, so Catherine, I want to finish with you because uh, you got as far as the North Koreans are down at the south of the peninsula, which I think a lot of people forget that at the time of the international intervention, you know, the South Korean state was basically finished. And so, you know, kind of in brief, tell us the rest of the story. The UN Security Council passes a resolution with Russia kind of having gone to the bathroom. And uh, what happens? Well, you know, the Korean War is fascinating because there were so many mistakes that were made and assumptions that proved to be so incorrect, especially those made by General MacArthur. And he is lauded as a hero uh, by many in the United States who still remember him, of course, um, and, and definitely in South Korea, uh, among the older generation, the Korean War generation, who looked at him as a savior. As weirdly do Jap- a lot of Japanese, at least, of that yes, generation. Yes, I was just going to say that, that there in Japan and in South Korea, there are clubs that, um, that have been established to commemorate the life and uh, heroic deeds of General MacArthur. Apparently, there are shamans in South Korea who try to embody the spirit of General MacArthur to give uh, you know wisdom and um, and life advice to people who are paying. I mean, it's it's very strange, but you know, my own readings, studies have taught me that MacArthur was such a flawed man. Of course, we know that in many ways. One of which was his having challenged uh, the civilian power, the the commander in chief of the United States, Mr. Truman. But more so on a military level, that he, in many ways, uh, embodied what seems to have gone on during the uh, Iraq War, that he wanted only intelligence that would uh, give him certainty in terms of his own assumptions, in his own intentions. So he worked with a very small coterie of people that he trusted in South Korea. He ignored the commands as well as the advice and intelligence from the Pentagon. Well, this is the war office at the time. And he basically was trying to run his own show, which led to huge flaws in judgment. He was not prepared. He also uh, is lauded for the Incheon landing that actually brought the first wave of U.S. troops to South Korea that later pushed the North Koreans northward. Um, relieving the pressure on the South. But the Incheon landing was completely a matter of luck, to tell you the truth. Um, There were so many aspects of the decision-making regarding the Incheon landing that didn't hold uh, muster. It just was not rational. Uh, Environmental issues, climate issues, um, the terrain, all sorts of things. He was hell-bent on choosing Incheon as the landing venue. So he got really lucky. Um, and then there's also the, the reality that the American troops suffered so much under his watch. 
Um, the American troops were deprived of uniforms, warm clothing in the horrifically cold weather of uh, South and North Korea in the wintertime, not enough rations. And the worst part of it in some ways was not enough and not uh, properly outfitted weaponry. This was a time when the U.S. had demobilized from World War II and trying to get all of the supplies to the Korean front proved to be such a challenge. So his men suffered tremendously during the, uh, the, the Korean War. There are more people who died of frostbite than actual bullet wounds. So it was a horrific experience. As far as the uh, legacy of the Korean War, both the North and South still talk about reunification. If you recall, the 2018 uh, Winter Olympics that was held in South Korea, it was the venue of a grand diplomatic effort by the South Korean president, Moon Jae-in, who invited uh, North Korean leaders, the sister of Kim Jong-un in particular, and a small delegation to the Winter Olympics, partly to show off South Korea and partly to say, look, we can be in on this together. We can be a unified nation in the future if your country can reorient itself. And so we are always hearing this word reunification out of Koreans' mouths from the North and the South. Why is that? It's because of the division of the peninsula, the bloodshed, a civil war. It was a civil war that is the primary importance that we need to keep in mind. It, we learn it in uh, American textbooks and in college as an international police action. Um, ben, you had referred to that phrase. But for the Koreans on both sides, this was a civil war where millions of people lost lives, where millions of people lost families. The division of the peninsula meant that millions and millions of families left behind loved ones on both sides. So I want to ask you all about one other aspect of the legacy, which is uh, on the American side, which is the imprint that the Korean War created for 10, 12 years later when we started to get involved with Vietnam, in Vietnam, that I think the imprint that, that the Korean War left for many Americans was that you could have an amphibious landing, you cut the peninsula in half, you, you beat the, the communist invaders back, and then you kind of hold a line and you get an armistice and the southern half of the state lives. And maybe you don't wipe out the northern half, but at least you protect the southern half. And I think that was what was in the minds of a lot of people in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations during the Vietnam War, I think they were thinking about Korea and did not realize how bad a model Korea was for what they were trying to do. I'm interested for any of your thoughts on that that might have thoughts on it. I think uh, it's a really, really important observation um, that in some ways they were the wrong lessons learned. But the Korean War provided enough of a classroom experience uh, that Americans should have learned. You know, we always ask why, why don't we learn the lessons of war? So one thing is topography, climate. Um, as I mentioned before, American uh, military forces suffered a lot because of the harsh winter climates in 
on the Korean Peninsula. And the, the terrain, the Korean Peninsula is basically a mountainous terrain. So U.S. Uh, troops had been trained, they had not been trained, rather, to fight in such mountainous terrain. And it proved very, very difficult for them. You can't move tanks up and down mountain trails. In Vietnam, that it's a similar situation where jungle warfare, uh, guerrilla warfare, and of course, the, the, the crazy hot, humid climate were situations that American troops had not been used to and that you just don't slip into a foreign country that you really know nothing about, which is true in both Korea and in Vietnam as far as Americans were concerned at that time. You just can't slip into a foreign country and decide that you're going to be able to whip people up north, uh, you're past the uh, the demarcation line. So I think the, these were very um, there were very facile assumptions that had been made both in in Korea and in Vietnam, and then of course uh, in both cases they came back to roost. We're going to leave it there, Catherine Moon. Scott Anderson, Matt Waxman, thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. This episode of the Lawfare Podcast was recorded by the one, the only, Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare podcast, so tweet us, share us on Facebook, upvote us on Reddit, and pin us on Pinterest. Leave a rating and review wherever you found us, and of course, visit. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details thelawfarestore.com to buy your Lawfare merch so that you can advertise us wherever you go. The Lawfare podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.